Good morning. Today is the first day of Advent, and Advent is the season that always starts on the fourth Sunday before Christmas. Whether Christmas is on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you just count back four Sundays, and that's when Advent begins. And for Christians, Advent, the first Sunday of Advent, is the first day of the year. The Christian year starts today. Now, I'm glad Advent is here. I'm very glad because I love the traditions of Advent. I love these flowers and this wreath. And I love Christmas trees and gift giving. I love what comes after Advent. I love Christmas. But the main reason that today I am so happy that Advent has finally begun is because I personally, just being confessional, right now, I really need Advent. And and the reason I need Advent is because I need to remember that Jesus is near, that he's close, that he's close at hand, that he's present to me right now. And that he was yesterday when I forgot it. And that he will be tomorrow. And that he will return in power to make all things right. I need to remember his present nearness and his future return. And I need to remember this because I'm, just to be honest, tired of my weaknesses right now. I am tired of my failure. This isn't just an introduction to a sermon. I I am tired right now of my sin. And I need to remember that the Lord is near and that he will return because I'm struggling. I am worn out with the war in Ukraine and Gaza and Sudan. I'm tired of the sufferings. I'm struggling with anxiety about conflict in my own family and conflict between Republicans and Democrats. I'm anxious about the upcoming presidential election and if it's going to tear our church apart. If some of you are going to leave. We had a whole group of people leave in the last election. I'm anxious about this. But thankfully, Advent is here. And Advent is the season in the Christian year where we focus as a group on a set of disciplines and rituals and prayers and scripture readings to remind us the Lord is near. That he is close at hand. And that the story doesn't end in a tragedy. It ends in victory and joy. It's closer to a rom-com in its ending, not in its ethics. (laughs) This is precisely what I need to remember. And I need your help to remember it. And I need a season to remember it. 
And this is something that our passage that we get to this morning in Philippians, exactly where it lands. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to our New Testament reading, Philippians chapter 4, and we're only going to cover three verses, verses 4 through 7. And notice what it says right in the middle of these three verses. Right in the middle, at the end of verse 4, it says, The Lord is at hand. Now, Spencer, my daughter, when she was little, when these kind of coincidences occur, that this is the passage we've gotten to for this Sunday. It wasn't planned. We were supposed to be done with Philippians several weeks ago. But isn't it kind of Jesus that the passage we landed on, the heart of the passage, is that the Lord is at hand? He's talking about Jesus here, the Messiah of Israel, who is God himself, the king of the world. When it says the Lord is at hand, King Jesus is at hand. He's near. And that, that phrase, Paul is using it as a double entendre. It means two things at the same time. First of all, it means spatial nearness. And secondly, temporal, chronological nearness. Let me explain. When it says the Lord is at hand, this is about physical proximity, spatial distance. Jesus is physically close. He's not far off. We may feel like he's a million miles away. Some of us hardly ever feel Jesus. Some of us don't go through Two days without feeling Jesus. There is a lot of difference in this room when it comes to feeling Jesus. Some, me, from the time I was young, I sense the nearness of Jesus. When I open the Bible, I feel like he's speaking to me. My wife, rarely does she feel Jesus. It's just God made us different. We're different kinds of people who have different kinds of journey. But this isn't about feeling. This is about the facts. And sometimes our feelings help us see and know the facts. And you know this. You know this. You know that sometimes your feelings actually distort the facts, right? Can kind of cut both ways. The Lord is at hand. Some of us need to memorize six words. Philippians 4, 4. The Lord is at hand. Because some of us don't ever feel it. And sometimes we don't feel it because of our sin. Your sin can blunt you. To a feeling of the nearness of Jesus. Some of us don't feel it like my wife. God just hasn't chosen that for the way he made her to live and be. Has nothing to do with sin for her. Has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with get your thinking right. It's just the way he wired together her feelings. Just exactly like you're related to people who feel different than you. Right? And sometimes we don't feel Jesus because... God has us at a place in our journey where it's important for us not to feel him so that we can learn to love him and be loyal to him apart from his gifts. Because at the end of the day, if you only love and are loyal to me because of my gifts and my strengths, our relationship can't go very deep. Remembering and knowing and trusting that God is near. This is something that Advent is designed to help us to do. To know that he's near. I mean, like our Old Testament reading, right? Second Kings chapter 6 that Barbara read to us. This amazing story, right? Where this guy has no... He's surrounded by all these, this army that's going to kill him. He has no idea that right out 
surrounding them is the army of the Lord. He can't see it. Well, not seeing it doesn't change the fact that it is. Not, he didn't feel it. He was overwhelmed with anxiety, but it was still there. And that story is about, look, there is more than meets the eye to reality. When we pray, our Father who is in heaven, we are not praying, Father who is a long ways away. We're praying the opposite. My Father who is in heaven. Heaven and earth in the Bible are an overlapping, interlocking reality. They are not two different locations. They're two different dimensions of the same location. My Father who's in heaven, when I pray this every morning in the shower, it is the reminder to me that he is right here. I cannot see him. Maybe I feel him. Maybe I don't feel him. But the fact is, He's in the dimension of heaven, and heaven and earth overlap and interlock. I love the stanza in Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem, Aurora Lee, where she writes, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware. I need Advent right now because I need to remember God's nearness and I need him to help me. Like my wife helps me. Janelle, when I can just be with her, she rests me. She puts me at rest, but I can't be with Janelle all the time. There are so many parts of my day where even, well, I couldn't get near to her. When I need to. But I need someone more than Janelle, right? Because Janelle's not perfect. I mean, she's so much closer than you people. (laughs) Some of you especially. (laughs) And, And a reason that God gave me Janelle was so that Janelle's love for me and comfort of me points me to a greater love and a deeper comfort and one who can go all the way into my heart. I need Advent because I need him to help me with my stress and my anxiety and my sin and my outlook and my behavior and I need him to come to me and help me with this. Second, when it says the Lord is near in Philippians 4.4, it's not only talking about spatial nearness that he's actually near physically it's also talking about temporal nearness when God tells us in Philippians 4 4 the Lord is at hand he's not only trying to teach us that our instincts and our feelings that God either doesn't exist or he's far away that those instincts and those feelings are wrong that he's physically near he's also teaching us that he is coming back Some of us should memorize Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27, where Job in the midst of a catastrophic season of life, where his own body is turned against him. He's he's got this gross bodily affliction going on. His friends have turned against him. His wife has turned against him. His children have been killed. His business has been bankrupted. And in the midst of all this suffering... When his supposed friends come to him to try to help him 
get his act together because clearly if your life falls apart, then you must not be doing right. In the midst of all of this physical, emotional hurricane of suffering he's going on and the, and the betrayal of his friends and his own wife, the way when you read through the book of Job, reading the book of Job is like experiencing Job. It just goes on and on. It doesn't stop. That's the point of the book. The point of the book is keep reading because this is how suffering is sometimes. It's endless. It's one of the longest books in the Bible. God gives the most real estate, one of the most sets of real estate in the whole Bible to a book that the very act of reading it is like a lot of our lives. Endless suffering, right? And in the midst of all of this, wave after wave after wave, there are these moments where Job finds his sanity. He doesn't live in it, but he finds it periodically. And one of the moments when he finds it is Job chapter 19, verse 25 through 27. His friends are just nailing him. You must have messed up. This is your fault your wife left. This is your fault that your business is bankrupt. This is all on you. And he says in the midst of this, no, for I know that my redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand up on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another The mere thought of this, my heart faints within me. For Job, in this moment of suffering, the key for his sanity was the return of Jesus. I know that my Redeemer lives and he will once again, at last, stand up on this earth. I want to encourage some of you to memorize that passage because there are times in life when, like Job, we go through such extreme suffering and evil and injustice that the only way to not drown in the undertow of drama, of trauma, is to know that Jesus Christ himself, the creator of this world, the God who made all things, that he is the true king of all things. He has conquered death and evil through his death and resurrection, and he will return he will come to us he will rescue us from our sin from the sins of others from the sins done to us he will raise his family from the dead and we shall see him with our eyes physically on this earth in a renewed creation with our tears wiped away and all things made new God intends to come and be with us too many people Think that the whole point of Christianity is for us to go and be with God. But over and over, the Bible insists, no, that view is paganism. That view is another religion. That view keeps infiltrating Christianity, and we have to keep fighting it back. The view of Christianity, the Bible insists over and over, is that God will come to be with us. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Proverbs, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 5. Over and over and over, the prepositions are God coming to be with us. So yes, God is near now, 
physically, but there is a veil between heaven and earth. And one day that veil will be totally removed. When Jesus returns, heaven will be fully, visibly, materially flooding the earth. That's the whole plot line of the Bible. The only moment in the, in the creation account in Genesis 1 where God refuses to pronounce it as good is when he separates heaven and earth. And that becomes on day two, the engine room that drives the plot of the entire scriptures. And so the end of the Bible ends in a moment when heaven and earth are no longer separated, but heaven has come to earth. And the glory of the Lord fills the earth like water covers the seas. I'm so glad Advent is here because the practices and the rituals of Advent remind me of the true story of the world. And I need to remember That Jesus will return and wars will end and suffering will end. And my broken relationships that I'm trying so hard to fix, that I'm begging God to fix, they will in the end be healed. My sin will not have the last word about me. This earth will not be destroyed naturally by our foolishness. Those suffering injustice will be vindicated. The poor will be economically secure. Human violence will stop. Natural violence will stop. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the nations will stream to Jesus and in his resting place they will find his glorious grace when Paul says in Philippians the Lord is at hand he means both of these things and then in verses four to seven wrapped around it He gives us three ways that if we live into this and we practice this and we think about this and we remember this, there are three particular ways he points out that it will shape our lives. First of all, notice the beginning of verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is one of the ways it will shape us. Now, this sounds to our ears like God is telling us to have an internal sense, an emotion of joy and happiness. That's not what the phrase means. That's a fine thing. I want that. I want the emotion of joy and happiness. Sometimes, other times, it's really immature. The important point here is that when he says, rejoice in the Lord always, again, I will say rejoice, he is telling them about a public action, not a private emotion. Let me explain. In Philippi, at the time this letter was written, this word, rejoice, was a word that meant publicly celebrate. You see, places like Corinth and Ephesus and Philippi and lots of other cities, they used to organize, during this time, they organized these huge festivals and games and and shows to celebrate their gods, their cities. Caesar himself, our city did this last night. So why shouldn't the followers of King Jesus do the same? Jesus' people should be known as people who fearlessly, publicly celebrate Jesus as Lord. 
Because we believe that the creator has taken on evil and death and injustice and sin and poverty. And he has sacrificially gone to battle to defeat them. And this amazing, powerful creator who is just so loving is near to us and will return to make that the default position of every lived experience. This is such a glorious impossibility, such a mind-boggling, hopeful, and joyful reality. We, of all people, if we believe that, should be people who have a reputation for joyful celebration. Look, the Lord's Supper that we're about to experience, the Lord's Supper that we get to enjoy every Sunday, this is Psalm 23, verse 5. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. This is Jesus coming right onto the battlefield and, and hosting a meal. What are your enemies? The sin you struggle with? The stress in your family? Despair, injustice, injustice done to you, the sin you've committed. Think of all these things that terrorize you. Think of all your enemies. And what we're doing here every Sunday is we're saying, your mama to our enemies. We're saying, who's your daddy now to our enemies? Look who's eating. Look who's celebrating. You're not going to get to be the end of this story. When the dust settles, all shall be well. When the dust settles, my own body will live without struggling with sin. When the dust settles, my relationships will not struggle from nincompoopness, either mine or yours anymore. When the dust settles, it will be the kingdom of God. It will be love and joy and peace. And we get to celebrate that every Sunday. This is a place where white American Christians need to quit coming to the Lord's table like it's a funeral. This is where we need to learn from our Arabic-speaking brothers and sisters who worship in our church every Sunday afternoon. Go to their worship service. It's a party. They're singing and there's dancing and they're not confused about where the victory is. And do you know they are living in the middle of a genocide? Every one of the Sudanese in our church, their family is back home and they can't get in touch with them. They're starving. They're being killed. Do you know that the genocide is flooding through Sudan right now? And they gather on Sunday and they feast on the Lord's Supper joyfully. But we, white people, with all of our stresses, oh, we've got to come to this like it's a funeral. This is a place we need to learn. No, I'm not saying that white Americans need to adopt another culture. No, that's the beauty of the gospel. It doesn't replace a culture. It says in your cultural ways, you find how to embody this. So what does it mean for you to become to start coming to church on Sunday as a white evangelical American who keeps his emotions? Where can they just peek out a little bit? Like, where can they somehow look more like Christmas than the funeral? The Lord is at hand. This should mean we become known in this city as a group of people who every Sunday have a party. Number two, we also see in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. 
Not only should our church be known as a group of people who have a party every Sunday as people of joy in the face of all the enemies and sufferings and problems, we should also be known for the quality of reasonableness. Now, this is one of those words that's hard to translate. So some of your Bibles translate it gentleness. Some say gracious. The fact is, this is a word in Greek that we have no one single English word that catches the whole thing. And if any of you know other languages, this is not out of the ordinary. To, sometimes you come across a word that it requires a lot of this. Well, sort of, you know. It's a word, apiacus, that means compassion and the habit of giving others the benefit of the doubt. And it means meeting people halfway. It means forbearing, not retaliating. Now roll all of that into one, and there's no English word for that. And you have this quality that we should be known publicly for. Are you? Are you known for that? The people who work for you, with you, or the, your boss? Your Democrat neighbor, your Republican neighbor, your political neighbor, your not political neighbor, your environmental neighbor, your Muslim neighbor, how about your family? Remember the, the theme verse of Philippians is chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul writes, the one thing I would stress to you is this, your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the kingdom. Your reputation, my reputation, in this city, the people who know us, our church's reputation should be compassion, the habit of giving other people the benefit of the doubt. Meeting people halfway. Forbearing. Not retaliating. All rolled into one. I need Advent because to some people I do have that reputation. And to some people I don't. And by focusing on and remembering and believing that Jesus is both physically near and will return to sort this all out, it helps me to let go of things and to let God do his work. So we're walking through these three verses to see how the season of Advent, with its focus on remembering the nearness and the soon and the return of Jesus, we're, we're seeing how this can lead us into being a better missionary church. The way the focus on Jesus' nearness and return can shape our lives into joy and into gracious gentleness. And third, verses 6 and 7 do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will set up a, a guard around your heart and your mind. Here we see that Advent can help us overcome the anxiety that leads us from joyful celebration and gentle, gracious, non-retaliating, non-anxious agitation. And it does this when we learn constant prayer instead of constant anxiety. 
Listen again to our psalm this morning. Psalm 145, verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him. Yesterday, I got agitated by something first thing in the morning. It has to do with a broken relationship in my life. And I was just hurting and suffering over it. And so I kicked the cat. I mean, not proverbially the cat, but literally the children, right? I worked out my anxiety on them by being irritable. And later that day, I was writing a letter to one of my children. And I just said, look, will you forgive me for this? If I had just done what Philippians teaches, if after I felt that wave of anger and agitation, I'd reflected for a moment, where's this coming from? And instead, I gave thanks to God and I brought that to him. Then I think God's peace would have guarded my heart and my mind more so that I was more gracious with you. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a series of books called the Space Trilogy. And in one of them, the second book, Paralandra. He's imagining this world before sin has occurred. It's called a prelapsarian world in theology. And it's this beautiful, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. And the kind of this woman who's like Eve, the, the mother of all living in this world. She, she's talking to, the, to this guy, Ransom, who's come from the earth and he knows what sin is and he knows what death is. And she's like, this world you live in, it she, she has this beautiful phrase. She said that your world is favored beyond all the worlds. Your world was chosen for time's corner, which is her way of imagining the birth of Jesus Christ. And a ransom is like, you think we're favored? He replies to the contrary. He says, we have death and death is horrible. It has a foul smell. Jesus himself wept when he saw it. And then when Ransom says this to Eve, who's never even heard of death in this other world, quote, he saw the shock, not the horror, but of utter bewilderment on her face for one instant. And then, without effort, the ocean of her peace swallowed it up as if it had never been. I want to become that kind of person that when the stress and the anxiety comes at me, I have learned these disciplines of remembering the Lord is near and of, of moving out toward anxiety with supplication to God and thanksgiving so that when it comes at me, I, I recognize it, and then the ocean of the peace of God that I have grown inside, the fruit of the Spirit, that it will swallow that up so that I'll stop hurting people. This is why I need Advent. I need Advent because I need to replace constant anxiety with constant prayer because I need to become a person marked by joyful celebration. And, and because I need to become a kind of person whose gentle graciousness is known to all. Can you imagine if our church just grew a little bit better at this? 
how much more of an effective missionary church we would be in this city. I want to encourage you. Get an Advent guide. Let's make this our prayer. Let's pray these prayers. Let's read these scriptures. Let's lean into this. And let's use Advent to get ready for Christmas. So that we can receive Jesus evermore in our hearts and our lives. Amen. Let's pray.